Getting to young Arizona is a bit harder than traveling to see most of the state's history. The town can only be accessed by two roads, each of which are unpaid for a majority of the trip. You can head up State Route 288 from its junction with State Route 188 near Roosevelt Lake, but be prepared for the pavement to cut out after not too long. Full disclosure, I've never actually made this trip myself, though I know people who have, but it is something that remains high on my list of things to do. And once you get into Young itself, in front of the town's museum, you will find a marker to the Pleasant Valley War, declaring it as, quote, one of the West's longest and bloodiest feuds, end quote. Like I said, seeing Young, and this marker in particular in person, remains high on my to-do list for obvious reasons. However, there is a second way into town, and a second marker. You can head south from State Route 260, going down Forest Road 512, also appropriately known as the Young Road or Young Highway, which will eventually connect you with State Route 288 on the north side of town. And this route takes you through the Tonto National Forest, and right before Young, you can turn right onto the Gravel Forest Road 200. About a mile down this road, on the left-hand side, there's a simple wooden sign. It reads, Tonto National Forest, Grave of Navajo Herder, First Victim, Pleasant Valley War, February 1887. It's a lonely spot, and a small marker, but the grave of this first victim is something that's definitely worth talking about. And that is part of today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 123, The Pleasant Valley War, Part 4, The Headless Shepherd. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we brought things in Pleasant Valley to the beginning of 1886 and wrapped up the legal war that erupted between the Grahams and the Tewksburys. That war ended up as a net win for the Tewksbury side, with the Grahams actually trying to sell their land and move out. At this point, things seemed to settle down, as both factions kept to their respective sides of Cherry Creek and life went on, more or less. Except that in 1886, the Tewksburys made a decision that many argue was just another way of sticking it to the Grams. In the spring of that year, they, and here I'm talking specifically about John Tewksbury and a business partner named William Jacobs, entered into an agreement with the Daggs brothers of Flagstaff to run sheep on shares, as they say. That's basically just an arrangement where the Dags turn over a number of sheep for Tewksbury and Jacobs to run, and then they split the profits. Now, for the Dags, this arrangement was a no-brainer. As we talked about last week, a court case involving the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, the outfit that we'll talk a lot more about in a moment, had ended with a judge telling the sheep industry that they couldn't move about the Colorado Plateau, as they had for years, with impunity anymore. The courts upheld the Aztecs' claim to the sections of land they had gotten from the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad, which meant the sheep owners were kicked out of the country they had been running on for years now. 
And just to add insult to injury, the territorial legislature was also induced by cattlemen to pass a bill saying that sheep could not legally be grazed within two miles of any cattle. Not that the two couldn't be within two miles of each other, mind you, but that sheep specifically couldn't come within two miles of cows. Many sources like to point out that the Mogollon Rim was a sort of holy line of demarcation. Above it, there were sheep. Below it were only cattle. But if the Aztec was going to run the sheep herders out of their own country, they started eyeing a route down to Phoenix, where there was a good market for their animals. How many animals the Dags actually had John Tewksbury and his partner run is a little hard to nail down. An 1887 assessor roll shows John Tewksbury as having 400 sheep. However, a Yavapai County official would chastise the assessor for not counting other bands of sheep in the possession of John and his family, which basically tells us that the Dags and the Tewksburys were kind of keeping some sheep off the books. Other sources say something like a thousand sheep suddenly descended on Pleasant Valley. I should stop here to again address the theory that the whole Pleasant Valley War was a fight over cattle versus sheep, and that the Dags, specifically eldest brother Peru Paxton, intentionally started it. Later authors would claim that this eldest Dag's brother let sheep go south of the Mogollon Rim to get the cattlemen fighting and to make a killing while they, well, killed themselves. Years later, Peru Paxton would write cryptically, quote, I ought to know something about the Tonto War, what we call the Pleasant Valley War. It cost me enough, $90,000. General Sherman said war is hell. He was right. End quote. Any telling of the Pleasant Valley War is going to include this statement, which is then either pointed to as proof positive of the Dag's guilt, or, as in the case with me, proof positive that everyone else has oversimplified the whole conflict because of said quote. The modern consensus seems to be that the Dags were not trying to start a conflict and had no idea what their sheep were about to unleash. Another theory floating around out there is that the Tewksburys decided to run sheep as yet another way that they could jab the grams in the eye with a pointy stick. I mean, how do you best tick off a couple of penny-ante cattlemen? Why, run hundreds, if not a thousand sheep near their territory, steal local resources, and run them all off. This theory too has some issues with it, as the Grams live further away from the Tewksbury's than the two-mile buffer prescribed by the territorial legislature, plus there were two other ranches between them and their respective properties. What's also interesting is that amateur historian Jinx Pyle, who had familial connections to the war, but also was able to preserve a lot of the talk of the old-timers in the 1950s, says that many of the people in Pleasant Valley hated sheep, but they still sided with the Tewksbury's. He points to a pair of brothers who recorded that they thought the Tewksbury's were hard-working, decent folk, but they couldn't stand the Grams, whom they characterized as being thick as thieves with horse and cattle rustlers. So definitely the whole sheep versus cattle narrative is only one part of the story. That being said, it is part of the story. So now we have to switch gears a little bit to talk about the big bad boogeyman of the Colorado Plateau, the Aztec Land and Cattle Company, or the Hash Knife Outfit. We talked about the origins of the Hash Knife, and the name Hash Knife, in episode 119, 
but suffice it to say that it was organized by a member of the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad and bankrolled by some pretty rich and powerful people back east, including two former governors of Massachusetts. The company was organized by the end of 1884, selling 10,000 shares and using that money to purchase the land alongside the Atlantic and Pacific Railroad. This essentially gave them control of a rectangular strip of land that was 50 miles wide and 90 miles long, running from east of Snowflake all the way to Flagstaff. It took two full days to ride north and south across Hashknife territory, and it took four full days to ride east to west. The Aztec also brought thousands of cattle to the Colorado Plateau at a time when prices were falling and the range was in danger of becoming overstocked. Its founder had seen the range a couple years earlier when it seemed like the grasses went on forever, but by the time the Aztec showed up, that was no longer the case. It will take several years for the ecological crisis we talked about back in episode 119 to hit, but the Aztec did have to contend with more competition than it would have liked. And the outfit also made no friends of those it was trying to displace. It aggressively began defending its claimed land, We'll see how aggressive a bit later, but it also took an aim at the Mormon settlements along the railroad track. When the Mormon settlers in places such as Snowflake, Heber, and Woodruff had settled their land, there was no railroad. When the A&P finally went through, there was talk that the railroad would honor the land the Mormons already laid claim to. But when the Aztec came in, it was a whole different story. It would take years to sort out, but suffice it to say that by 1889, the Aztec graciously let the Mormons buy their current land at a reasonable price. How neighborly of them. The arrival of the outfit also coincided very neatly with an increase in rustling, especially horse theft. It was bad in 1886 and increased in 1887. Jinx Pyle says that Tonto Basin, particularly Pleasant Valley, became a clearinghouse for all sorts of stolen animals, and that men who rode into the area looking for their horses were liable not to ride out again. No steed seemed safe unless it was continually watched over with a loaded rifle. But worst of all, in the words of author Daniel Justin Herman, quote, Into the mix the Aztec brought soldiers in the guise of Texas cowboys. End quote. Oh, the hash-knife Texas cowboys, the villains in nearly every telling of the Pleasant Valley War. Obviously, not everyone working for the cattle company was a bad person, and you can't paint any group in history with such broad brushes, but there is no getting over the fact that the hash-knife did attract a lot of people who, well, let's just say that they had to leave Texas for one reason or another. These were mostly young independent men looking for freedom and maybe a little upward social mobility. After they arrived, along with bringing Texan cattle practices that revolutionized the industry and the territory, they also brought some more rambunctious energy, like you might expect. The cowboys spent their incomes in one of two ways. First, getting the nicest saddle, hats, boots, and spurs money could buy, and second, having a good time. I mentioned back in episode 117 that Holbrook originally had something of a very unsavory reputation, and that was not helped by those looking to cash in on the cowboys looking to drink, gamble, and carouse. We have record of several incidents 
such as a former Hashknife employee killing another former employee in a Hashknife camp over a game of cards, or one drunken cowboy shooting at a swinging railroad lamp, missing and hitting a conductor instead. During a dance in Holbrook in 1887, several cowboys got into a shooting match with a group of Mexicans because they were trying to monopolize all the dancing time with the senoritas present. The result being a Mexican man was killed while a hashknife employee would walk the rest of his life with a limp. As you might imagine, the cowboy's idea of fun, horse racing, drinking, gambling, drinking, prostitution, drinking, shooting up the town, and, oh, drinking, clashed very violently with their pious, teetotaling Mormon neighbors. The cowboys, whom the Mormons branded as worthless troublemakers at best and violent outlaws at worst, would descend on Mormon dances just to shoot out the lights and cause all sorts of mischief. But if a Mormon dared to show his face at a Texan fiddle dance, he would be attacked and hauled off. On at least one occasion, a Hashknife employee actually reenacted that stereotypical 1950s western scene by shooting at the feet of some Mormons to make them dance. However, there was one thing that the Hashknife cowboys hated much more than Mormons. Sheep. As we noted last week, at first, sheep herders did not take the Hashknife's claim to their territory too seriously as they didn't have a solid surveyed claim, and even though they only owned alternating sections, the Hashknife went on to say that they were keeping people out of all the sections adjoining theirs as well. And eventually, they started to back up their talk with action. Along with the cowhands, the outfit also had enforcers, men who were just as mean and ornery, but with the task of making sure no one was crossing their territory. During this period, enforcers did any number of things such as pistol-whipping shepherds, killing a prized collie dog, driving horses with cowbells around their neck to scatter herds, and driving herds into bogs where hundreds of sheep became stuck and eventually died. After one incident like that last example, they also destroyed the sheep herders' camp, just to add that final coup de grace. All this is why, in his book, Herman argues that we shouldn't call this the Pleasant Valley War, but extend it to the whole area and call it the Mogollon Rim War. Okay, so let's bring it back down to Pleasant Valley. With their name now mud among most of their fellow settlers in Pleasant Valley, it's not surprising that these new cowboys employed by the Hashknife were just the sort of people that the Grams started to socialize with. And if they weren't involved in much beforehand, this is where the Grams really apparently started getting into horse and cattle rustling. Most of what we have to go on is speculation, but with the crowd they are running with, it appears that the Grams were involved in the movement of animals through the valley. They also joined in with the general cattleman hatred of sheep, and Tom Graham in particular was said to often joke about how he would fire his gun into a sheep herder's fire to cover their dinner with ashes or soot, or he would perfectly place a bullet into their coffee pot just as they went to pour it. And their resentment towards the Tewksbury's had not cooled one bit. Pilo relates the story of ranch hand John Rhodes, who had been hired to bring some cows into Pleasant Valley. After doing so, Rhodes says that he was approached by two members of the Graham faction who told him that they were at war with the Tewksbury's and they wanted Rhodes to join them. When he declined, these two basically said, anyone who comes here has to join us, or we won't let them into Pleasant Valley. 
So Rhodes decided to defuse the situation by drawing his pistol and told them to move aside or else. And Pyle says he has more anecdotes of other settlers having similar encounters with members of the Graham faction. One family that the Grahams did take up with were the Blevinses. Like most moving to Arizona at this time, the Blevinses had come from Texas, where they already had a colorful history. According to family legend, the patriarch of the family, Martin or Marty or Mart Blevins, had moved from Missouri to Texas, but he had been forced to flee from the county he was living in after a shootout following a horse race. Another account is that the family was deeply involved in horse theft in that county. One son, William Hampton, or Hamp, had already been paroled after a year in prison for horse theft at the age of 16. But who really takes the cake was Martin's oldest son, Andrew, who went by Andy. By the by, he also went by the last name Cooper, either to hide his real identity or not to bring shame to his family. There are about 101 tales about Andy Cooper, and it's hard to separate fact from fiction. He probably set foot in Arizona no later than 1885, but why he came is a colorful assortment of legends. One telling is that he had fled Texas on a stolen horse to evade the family of a woman with whom he had hoped to elope. Another is that he had jumped off a train to escape from some Texas rangers. Or he had shot the wrong man or stolen the wrong horse and was just a day ahead of a warrant. So, all these legends tell us the kind of man that we're dealing with here. Once in Arizona, he quickly developed yet another bad reputation for himself, especially when it came to stealing horses from the Navajo reservation and not having any qualms about killing Navajos either. He also engaged in the same activity as many of his hashknife brethren, namely jumping the claim of Mormon settlers. The most often repeated story is that of the Adams brothers, John and Will, who owned some land along Canyon Creek, which is to the northeast of Pleasant Valley. As just a random side note, we used to go camping along Canyon Creek as a family quite a bit when I was younger, and I will attest to why someone would want to settle there. So the story goes that Andy Cooper rode up boldly, held the two, plus John's family, at gunpoint, and ordered them to leave with only what they were carrying. Of course, the story also goes that the Adams had gone to a marriage at the Mormon Temple in St. George, and Cooper and others just sort of took over their homestead while they were gone. And a third version is that Cooper either straight up or eventually paid the brothers $200 for the site, but then swore the Adams to secrecy about the deal to protect his bad boy image. And a funny aside to that last version is that Cooper made threats against the Adams' brother-in-law, swearing to shoot his guts out. At this, Will confronted Cooper, pulling a cork out of a nearby bottle, throwing it up in the air, and then blasting it to pieces with his revolver. He then looked at Cooper to basically put up or shut up, and the infamous outlaw decided that this demonstration was enough to make him, on this occasion at least, shut up. I honestly can't tell you which version of how Cooper acquired the site along Canyon Creek is true, but the important point to take away is that he acquired the land, and then he wrote home to Texas that Arizona was a cattleman's dream and that the family should follow him pronto. In short order, Mark Blemons, his father, and several of his brothers, including Hamp and Albert, who went by Charles or Charlie, set up their base of operations along Canyon Creek. The family was there in force by 1886, and Mart, 
though only 50, acquired the nickname Old Man Blevins. From here, the family participated in all sorts of rustling shenanigans, either stealing horses and cattle straight up, or helping move illegally procured animals north and south. And as good outstanding cattlemen, the Blevins and their allies took an instant dislike to anyone running sheep. It just so happened that their allies were the Grahams, and those running sheep were either the Tewksbury's or the Tewksbury's friends. So more harassment of shepherds continued, with some corrals being burned down and apparently in early 1887, an entire herd of sheep mysteriously vanished. Then came a big event, which would become another one of the major set pieces of the Pleasant Valley War and the setup for today's episode. In February 1887, the body of one of the Dag's sheep herders was found, riddled with bullets and, according to newspaper articles at the time, his head some 15 feet away from his body. The identity of this shepherd, who met such an ignominious fate, is actually unknown. Every source I have gives a different account. He was either Mexican, Navajo, Ute, or even Basque, depending on who you want to believe. The sign erected by Tonto National Forest identifies him as a Navajo, or whatever that's worth. The point is, he was a typical sheep herder for his time, and he had met a grisly end in Pleasant Valley while running sheep for the Dags brothers. The news of the sheep herder's death traveled across the territory in several papers, as the crime itself was ghastly enough, but its ties to the previous unrest and shootouts in the valley meant that readers would have more drama to read about. Now, I will add here, though, that the detail about the head being chopped off is probably an invention of the ever-embellishing newspapers of the day. This detail does not make it into the original inquest that was conducted in the days following the murder, nor in some of the other accounts that originate within Pleasant Valley itself. But as mysterious as the identity of the man himself to us is, is the identity of the killer. There was simply no way to tell who had done such a heinous deed, though there was no lack of suspects. Obviously, one of the sheep-hating cattlemen of the area had taken the matter into his own hands and dispatched the poor shepherd. But narrowing it down from the large pool of potential candidates was impossible. The Yavapai County Coroner even tells us that a coroner's jury was not called upon because of the high likelihood that the murderer himself would wind up impaneled on the jury. Still, rumors persisted afterwards that tracks had been found near the body, and those tracks were heading directly toward the Graham Ranch. If that's true, then it must have put all the Tewksbury's on notice that the Grahams and their allies were not only willing to run off their sheep, they were willing to go much, much further than that. Right here, I'm going to insert something that Pyle, in his write-up of the Pleasant Valley War, includes the identity of the killer. This is something that the amateur historian found in the oral and few written histories in the area, and something that I can't find anywhere else, so I'm, I'm going to hand out a few grains of salt right now for this version of events. According to Pyle, the shooter was none other than a man named Bill Colkert, a cattleman living in Pleasant Valley with his brother. Now, the Colkerts were actually friends of the Tewksbury's and enemies of the Grahams, having had multiple animals stolen by Hashknife employees. However, they were still cattlemen, and the introduction of sheep to the valley was something they weren't going to tolerate. 
The brothers apparently scouted the sheep herding camp and bided their time for the right moment to strike. When that time came, Bill Colkard rode into the sheep herd, his revolver drawn. He then approached the shepherd and commended him on the fine rifle the man possessed. Bill asked nicely to see the gun, a request that the man couldn't really refuse seeing as Bill had his own piece at the ready. Once the shepherd had turned over the weapon, barrel down of course, Bill holstered his own gun and then spun the rifle in his hands, simultaneously chambering around into the barrel and then proceeded to shoot the man dead with his own rifle. According to Pyle, Bill fired only this one shot, knowing that firing multiple bullets was a sure way to attract people. He then did something significant. He rode off, but he rode off purposefully in the direction of the Graham Ranch. Leaving a semi-obvious trail, he soon joined a well-traveled route that saw a lot of traffic from the Grahams and their cowboy allies. At this point, Bill was able to make a long, circuitous route to his own home, knowing that the trail would not point to him, but to the Grahams, whom, let's be honest, the Tewksbury's were already inclined to suspect. Paul makes a point to say that Bill Colker did this heinous act and put on the masquerade of blaming the Grahams because he didn't want any trouble with his friends. He simply wanted sheep gone from the valley. Given the violence that's about to erupt between both sides, it might have been actually a smart move to not engage the Tewksbury's. However, yeah, Bill just killed a guy in cold blood, so I can't really say that I have that much sympathy for him. As I said before, Pyle is the only person who records this version of events, though he does have a few anecdotes he can point to saying that the old-timers in Pleasant Valley all knew it was Bill Colkert who shot the Lone Shepherd, but didn't say anything out of fear slash respect for the man. Though this is the first time that the animosity between the Tewksbury's and Grahams, cattlemen and shepherds had spilled over into outright murder, there were signs percolating that violence was going to be the means of settling things going forward. Herman tells us that in 1885 or 1886, the Tewksbury's and their allies both received mysterious letters telling them to leave the valley or die. Of course, the author also says that it's very possible the Tewksbury's had sent very similar letters of their own to their enemies. In March 1887, the month following the death of the Dags brother Shepherd, it was told that the colorful and volatile Andy Cooper was making the rounds to all the cattlemen in Pleasant Valley. With him, he carried a contract that basically said that all of the undersigned parties agreed to pay Andy Cooper 50 bucks for each and every Tewksbury scalp. Some actually signed this contract in earnest. At least one rancher was bullied into putting down his name, while others chose to pick up and leave Pleasant Valley forever. But a few, such as the Colkerd brothers, turned Cooper and his horrible contract away at gunpoint. As 1887 progressed, tensions continued to develop. That summer, another Dags brother shepherd named Samuel Scholl was killed at a camp above the Mogollon Rim. And a shepherd named Chris Jurgensen, who was working with John Tewksbury's business partner William Jacobs, was apparently shot in the back by someone named Charles Duchet, an outlaw who had aligned himself with Grahams. Unlike the poor nameless shepherd, Jurgensen would survive this attack, but also decided that leaving Pleasant Valley was probably the best thing he could do for his health. Pilo relates that the two sides would have many, quote, smoke and lead confrontations in early 1887, about which little is known. 
Though I'm not sure I entirely believe this narrative, as every other time these two sides shoot at each other, it's publicized pretty heavily. But there is no doubt that the Grahams and the Tewksburys had reached a breaking point, where there was no other option than to settle these matters with smoke and lead. One author, writing about the Pleasant Valley War in the 1956 Arizona catalog, put it this way, quote, As could be expected, this condition produced accusations and recriminations, with threats from the Graham side to run the Injun Sons of Expletive Deleted out of the valley, and from the Injun Sons of Expletive Deleted an invitation to try when ready, end quote. We are going to leave things here this week, with at least two men dead, one of them in the heart of Pleasant Valley, and both sides just itching for an excuse to pull the trigger. Next week, the war will take off in earnest, as a missing man leads to suspicions, which leads to a posse-slash-mob, which leads to a shootout, which leads to another death, which leads to another shootout. The Grams and the Tewksburys are both out for blood now, and what could possibly stop them? I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.